Welcome to episode 142 of See It or Shove It. I'm your host, Greg, and I'm here again this week to give you my thoughts on the latest movies playing in theaters and streaming on your TV. Also this week, in Oscar Outlook, I will discuss the impact of the various awards from this past weekend. And in Be Kind Rewind, we look at which Oscar winner from the past you voted for. For our featured movies this week, A Woman Tries to Pay It Forward When Someone in Her Community Is in Need, Two Women Inadvertently Become Enemies with a Crime Ring, and A Man Lives His Life Filled with Gratitude. Let's get started. First up, A Woman Tries to Find Redemption When She Rallies the Town to Save a Young Girl. This is Ordinary Angels. I'm not comfortable with this. I'm her father. I'm supposed to be the one taking care of her. You're gonna have to get comfortable being uncomfortable because this ain't about you. It's about your little girl. When your inside's breaking in. Michelle will need to fly to the children's hospital immediately. I've had patients who have missed that window because they couldn't get a flight. Don't lose your faith over this. Officials are saying be prepared for what they're calling the worst blizzard in state history. Two-time Academy Award winner Hilary Swank stars in this true story as Sharon Stevens, a hairdresser in Kentucky who has been living a hard life, drinking her worries away on a regular basis, much to the annoyance of her boss. Across town, Ed Schmidt, played by Alan Richson, is grieving the loss of his wife who has passed away due to a rare blood disorder. He, along with his mother Barbara, played by Nancy Travis, is dealing with now being a single father to two daughters, one of whom is in dire need of a kidney transplant. One day, Sharon is forced to attend an AA meeting. You know, she doesn't take it very seriously, as shown by immediately leaving and going to the local convenience store to pick up a six-pack. While in line, she sees a newspaper headline about Schmidt's daughter, Michelle, and the debt the family has incurred, and is quite taken by the story. Feeling this is a message for her to get her life together, Sharon begins organizing fundraisers for Michelle, using the hair salon as the home base to collect donations and host charity events. Of course, she does all this without even having met Ed and his family. She finally does when she shows up at his door with an envelope filled with thousands of dollars in cash. She soon forces her way into his family and offers whatever help she can, including helping with the kids, helping Ed secure work, and negotiating with hospitals to forgive Ed's debt. Much to Ed's annoyance. But Sharon tells him she is not good at taking no for an answer. And that's a trait that comes in handy more than once. The rest of the film shows Ed's fight to save his daughter and Sharon's fight for redemption. When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a shove-it. And I give this film a... See it. Not a single thing about this film is unpredictable. Going into it, you know how it's going to end, you know how you're going to get there, and you know you're going to leave feeling all warm and fuzzy. And that did happen. But what surprised me was how effective this predictable story was. Watching the trailer, I thought this was going to be a preachy, faith-based film with terrible acting and a storyline filled with things that would make me roll my eyes endlessly for two hours. But it was quite the opposite. There were many times throughout this film that I was on the verge of tears, thanks in part to a script written by Meg Tilly and Kelly Freeman Craig, as well as the performances by Richardson and especially Swank. This film reminds us why she won two Academy Awards. She can draw out an emotion with a facial expression with the best of them, and after her last few films that have been questionable in quality, it's nice to have this competently made film for her. 
and, you know, it's putting her back on track and getting some good notices. As far as it being faith-based, there's a little here and there, but it's not in your face, and if I didn't know going in that this was a faith-based film, I probably wouldn't have called it that. It is a crowd-pleasing, heartwarming story, although I'm not sure if it would happen in today's society that somebody can just infiltrate into somebody's life and take over as much as she did, but anyway, it was a nice story. And um, I think anyone who watches it would find something to enjoy. I'm really surprised at how much I like this movie. Next, two friends on a road trip become entangled in a crime that sends their journey off track. This is Drive Away Dolls. I understand that you're unhappy, sir. We will find and deliver the package. We just want your friends. You cannot relate to the public, which in the service profession is a big handicap. Did the two creeps find you? They know we have their stuff. Maybe we sell it back. Shake them down. Are they like wanted or something? Oh, no. They're not in trouble at all. I'm going to help you break a big murder case. That is about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Starring Margaret Qualley and Geraldine Viswanathan, Drive Away Dolls is directed by Ethan Cohen, one half of the sibling directing team behind such renowned films as Fargo, The Big Lebowski, and No Country for Old Men. Here, he tells the story of Jamie and Marion, two best friends who decide to go on a road trip to find themselves for different reasons. Jamie has just broken up with her girlfriend Suki, played by Beanie Feldstein, and Marion needs to just get away after failing endlessly to find a girlfriend, and she decides to go to Tallahassee, Florida, where she has family and knows of the perfect spot for bird watching. Complicating the trip, other than the fact that these two women are polar opposites, is that they volunteer to get a drive-away car, which is a service where, in exchange for the rental, the car will be delivered to a specific spot. It just so happens that Curly's drive-away service serves as a cover-up to criminals looking to transport illegal things throughout the country. Curly, played by Bill Camp, just received a call from a crime boss played by current Oscar nominee Coleman Domingo, and he wants Curly to set it up to get a car to Tallahassee in a specific time frame. When the women come in to get the car, they are mistaken as the transporter for the crime. However, when the criminals show up to get the car, the car is already gone, heading south with a briefcase and hatbox that contains things that I won't mention for fear of spoiling it. After giving the car to the women, let's just say it doesn't end well for Curly, as the women are now targeted by the criminals. Can they get to Tallahassee before the mob finds them to retrieve their briefcase and hat box? When I saw the trailer for this, I predicted it would be a see-it. And I give this film a... Mild see-it. I was really looking forward to this one ever since I first saw the trailer. I believe it was last summer when it was originally supposed to be released in the fall. While it is very funny and very briskly paced at about an hour and 20 minutes before the credits roll, I couldn't help but feel that something was missing here. It's almost as if the tone was too chaotic for me. I did like the throwback to crime capers of the past, but it was almost just too much. Same thing with Quali's performance. Her exaggerated accent and over-the-top behavior, while it suited the character, it just, again, was too much. It's almost like this movie was too much, but not enough, if that makes any sense. Viswanathan, however, on the other hand, was great as always. I can't think of a performance of hers that she's had that I did not enjoy. But in the end, this film was enjoyable enough that I didn't feel overly disappointed by it, but I was just hoping for more. That's all. (laughs) 
Next, a sanitation worker enjoys the little pleasures in life. This is Perfect Days. Currently nominated for Best International Feature at this year's Academy Awards, Perfect Days is an acting showcase for Koji Yakusho and tells the story of Hiriyama, a friendly public servant who works cleaning modern public toilets in the Shibuya district of Tokyo. Hiriyama wakes each morning and conducts the same routine while getting ready for work, and then leaves his apartment, gets into his van, chugs an energy drink, and chooses from one of his many cassette tapes as his soundtrack to his commute. Hiriyama is a man who basks in the simple pleasures in life, even something as simple as watching the sunrise. He is a man of a certain age and leads a solitary life. It's a life that he seems more than fine with as he enjoys everything he does, including cleaning public toilets, which he does with such impeccable precision that he clearly takes deep pride in his work, something that baffles his much younger co-worker. Not much happens to Hiriyama that strays from his daily routine, except for when the aforementioned co-worker forces him off path one night, and when a family member shows up one night at his apartment. But even those interruptions are met with pleasantness and an ability to merge within his routines. While we discover that Hiriyama wasn't always like this, although it is never revealed specifically what his life was prior to this moment, this film is a portrait of a man who is living his best, most peaceful life under simpler circumstances. I give this film a... See it! This is a quiet, beautiful film. As you can probably tell from what I just said, not a lot happens throughout its two-hour runtime. But I was just so mesmerized with the character of Hiriyama that I was engaged throughout from beginning to end. Koji Yakusho is excellent in this role. His performance is so touching and so charming that for two hours I felt like I was spending time with him, right next to him. It's almost as if I've known this man for years. The character's past is never really dealt into other than to imply that something has happened between him and his family in the past, but we don't know what. I can see why this was nominated at the Oscars. It is a beautiful-looking, beautifully-told film. If it's playing near you, it's worth checking out. That's it for this week's featured films. To recap, Ordinary Angels is in theaters now and is a see-it and is, surprisingly, my pick of the week. Drive-Away Dolls is in theaters now and is a mild see-it. And Perfect Days is in theaters now and is a see-it and is also my other pick of the week. Now, let's move on to the segment where I let you know the latest titles coming to home viewing. This is now streaming. The devastating film All of Us Strangers was criminally underappreciated by the Academy, where at minimum Andrew Scott should currently be competing in the Best Actor category. It is a raw look at grief and guilt. It is now streaming on Hulu, and to hear my full review, listen to episode 133. Oscar winner Sofia Coppola's look at life inside Graceland, Priscilla, 
was an early Oscar contender for lead actress Kaylee Spaney, but her campaign never really materialized as the film came and went from theaters. I found the film to be well-made, if not a bit uneven, and felt it may have benefited from having more distance from the flashier Elvis movie that came out the year prior. It is now streaming on Max, and to hear my full review, listen to episode 117. And the animated Inspector Sun is a fun take on Agatha Christie that didn't make a dent at the box office, but is a decent thing to put on for the kids on a weekend. It is now streaming on Hulu, and to hear my full review, listen to episode 115. Now it's time for me to look at the state of the Oscar races. This is Oscar Outlook. So we're less than two weeks away from the Oscars, and this past weekend we had a couple of awards handed out um, that are really starting to shape up the state of some of the races. The Screen Actors Guild handed their awards out on Saturday night, and um, Divine Joy Randolph and Robert Downey Jr. just further cemented their place as the runaway leaders in both supporting categories. Um, But there was a little bit of a shakeup in the lead categories with Lily Gladstone winning for Killers of the Flower Moon and Killian Murphy beating out um, Paul Giamatti for Oppenheimer. Um, And Oppenheimer cast won the, um, the Best Ensemble Award. So, honestly, I'm... Starting to think that Gladstone is going to make a last-minute push in the Best Actress race and kind of push Emma Stone to second place. Um, Not quite ready to pull the trigger on that yet, mainly because it might be wishful thinking on my part. And same thing with Killian Murphy with lead actor. I'm actually more confident that he's probably going to win over Paul Giamatti. Um, And that makes me a little sad because Paul is my personal pick, but... There's nothing wrong with Killian Murphy's performance either, so either way, it's deserved. Um, But that's the state of those races. Um, I'll be finalizing my picks in the next coming days, So, um, but that's where I'm heading at this point. The Film Independent Spirit Awards were handed out Sunday. These rarely have any impact on the Oscars, but um, Divine Joy Randolph did win the Supporting Performance Award. Cord Jefferson won for Best Screenplay for American Fiction, and I think that is picking up steam right at the right time and will probably translate to the Oscar. Celine Song won Best Director, and uh, Jeffrey Wright actually won for Lead Performance, so it was nice to see him get an award um, because I don't think he has a chance at the Oscars. And Past Lives won for Best Feature. Again, there's no way in hell that's beating out Oppenheimer at the Oscars, but it was nice that these well-made, enjoyable films got to receive some kind of love somewhere. Now, as of this recording, the Producers Guild have yet to reveal who wins their award. I don't think it's going out on a limb to say that Oppenheimer is probably going to take it, but I won't know for sure for a couple hours, but I'm confident that it's probably Oppenheimer. So, In the next coming weeks, look forward to my predictions, as well as who I would pick if I was a voter. So I'll get you those in probably the next week, week and a half. Finally this week, it's time for my segment where I look at films from the past. This is Be Kind Rewind, 
Oscar edition. Leading up to the Oscars, I am focusing on one of my favorite winners of the past that you chose on my Instagram account. Last week, we covered the Best Actor with Casey Affleck's win for Manchester by the Sea. And this week, we focus on Best Actress, and your choices were... And the winner is... Liza Minnelli. And the Oscar goes to Kathy Bates in Misery. And the Oscar goes to Jodie Foster in Silence of the Lambs. You voted and chose... Kathy Bates in Misery. I'd like to thank the Academy. I've been waiting a long time to say that. In this film adaptation of the classic Stephen King novel, Bates plays Annie Wilkes, a woman who finds author Paul Sheldon, played by Oscar-nominated actor James Caan. Sheldon was traveling from Colorado when a freak snowstorm forced him to crash his car, leaving him severely injured. Wilkes finds him and takes him to her home in the mountains. Once alert, she informs him that she's his number one fan and that it's her honor to nurse him back to help. Convincing Paul to let her read his next novel, she grows furious when she finds out that he has killed off one of her favorite characters. This leads her on a path of obsessive violence holding Paul captive and torturing him until he rewrites the novel to her satisfaction. Directed by Rob Reiner, Misery was filmed on a budget of about $20 million, eventually earning $61 million at the box office. A frequent critic of film adaptations of his novels, Stephen King considers this movie in his personal top 10 favorites of the many adaptations. He was initially hesitant to sell the rights of the novel for fear it would not remain faithful to the source material. But after watching the adaptation of his novella, Stand By Me, he knew the novel would be in good hands if Rob Reiner was involved. So, with the provision of having Reiner either produce or direct it, he sold the rights. The roles of Paul and Annie made the rounds with several top stars considered. Before landing on James Caan, the role of Paul was twice offered to Oscar winner William Hurt, then Kevin Kline, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman, and Robert Redford. Each of them turned it down. Warren Beatty expressed interest but was unable to do it when post-production on Dick Tracy went over schedule. The Annie role was offered to both Angelica Houston and Bette Midler, but both declined to play the role. It was a decision that Midler would later say she regretted. At the time, Bates was a relatively unknown actress in Hollywood, having supporting and bit parts here and there, but it was misery that put her on the map. Her hiring was at the suggestion of the film's screenwriter, William Goldman. Her performance was ferocious, manic, and just human enough to evoke empathy, even though she does take a sledgehammer to Khan's ankles at one point in the film. That scene in particular was one that Bates wished was more faithful to the novel. In the novel, Wilkes amputates Paul's foot with an axe. Reiner thought by having her hobble him instead would maintain the audience's sympathy for her character rather than just hating her for her viciousness. The horror genre is one that was, and still is, not frequently represented at the Oscars in terms of nominations and wins, which makes Bates' win all the more impressive. When award season started, Bates was talked about as a possibility for Best Actress due to the impact her performance had on audiences. She became a serious contender when she picked up the Golden Globe for Best Actress in a Drama and then went into the Oscars as the favorite, competing against three previous winners, Angelica Houston for The Grifters, Meryl Streep for Postcards from the Edge, and Joanne Woodward for Mr. and Mrs. Bridge, 
and one up-and-comer who was the it girl at the moment, Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman. King was so impressed with Bates' performance that he went on to write two more roles specifically for her, writing the novel Dolores Claiborne with Bates in mind, and eventually rewriting the character of Ray in The Stand, going from a male character to a female character in order for Bates to play the role in the television miniseries. Bates would go on to earn three more Academy Award nominations for her roles in 1998's Primary Colors, 2002's About Schmidt, and 2019's Richard Jewell. Misery is available to rent on various digital platforms. Next week's Be Kind Rewind Oscar edition wraps up with a look at the film you chose for Best Picture. The choices were Titanic, The Shape of Water, and Parasite. Come back to see which one you selected. So that's it for this episode of See It or Shove It. Thank you so much for listening this week. Support your local theaters by going to see some of the movies I reviewed this month, and while you're at it, share my podcast with your movie and TV-loving friends and family. You can email me at seeitorshoveit at gmail.com and follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd at seeitorshoveit. Follow the show and rate it wherever you get your podcast. Come back next week to hear reviews of new releases, including Dune Part 2. I hope something else is being released because you know how I feel about science fiction, but I will go into it with an open mind, I promise. Until then, take care, everyone. Thanks again for listening. I appreciate you. Have a great week. This episode of Cedar Shove It was recorded and produced in Orlando, Florida. Music by Mysterio Music. All rights reserved. <laughs>